It is my great joy to be able to open up the Word of God to you again this morning, and I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, and we find ourselves this morning as we continue to study verse by verse this wonderful gospel in verses 10 through 14. However, what I'd like to do is get a running start, and I would like to just go all the way back to verse 1 of Matthew 18 and read through verse 14 so that we get the flow once again of this great text. Matthew 18, beginning with verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my father who is in heaven. For the son of man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety nine on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety nine which have not gone astray. Thus. It is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I'm often amazed when I contemplate about the love of God for his children. Many times, especially when I'm out west in the mountains, where there's no light pollution and you can look up and see stars that you never even knew existed. Many times I feel like a little speck. You look around at the vastness of creation and you feel like an insignificant little organism. Some inconspicuous little microorganism that is attached to the most minute grain of sand in the deepest part of the ocean. And yet our creator sees us with an infinite love. That's mind boggling to me. It's mind boggling to think that our creator set his love upon us before time began, the Bible tells us. 
Before the foundations of the world, he wrote our land, our names in the Lamb's book of life. He set his love and an affection on us, an intimate love before we were even created. In eternity past, the word of God tells us that he knew everything about us. He knew the color of our eyes, the color of our hair, shape of our face, the sound of our voice. He knew those things that would bring joy to our hearts and those things that would not. He knew how we would suffer and how we would be sanctified. And he knew our strengths and our weaknesses. He knew our gifts. He even knew the length of our life because even our days are ordained by him, the Bible tells us. And then at a predetermined point of time in history, we came into the world. Another miracle in and of itself. Indeed, we are told that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus prepared beforehand. Paul's words to us in Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship. Literally, we are his work of art that was divinely fashioned in eternity past. Prepared beforehand, the text says. In other words, ordained before time began. Now, friends, this once again is one of those inscrutable mysteries of God that boggles our minds. But we understand it enough to know that this is a love that is inconceivable. You know, he even knew our rebellion against him. When we were born, we were born spiritually dead, sinners by nature. And yet the word of God tells us that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And even that was ordained before we were created. In light of this, the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, 1, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. So much for an inconspicuous tiny speck at the bottom of the ocean. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Absolutely amazing. And as his children, we can call him Abba Father. An intimate term of endearment. We can, we can call him daddy. Indeed, we are recipients of unfathomable blessings in Christ. We're joint heirs with Jesus. Now think about that. Heirs of God, the Bible tells us. There is a portion of the lot in heaven that has our name on it. All of the joys that the Lord will have forevermore are also ours in glory. And we will spend eternity in the presence of the lover of our souls. Friends, this is. These are things that should call cause us to celebrate with tears, you know, it absolutely amazing when you think about it. 
And yet here we are living out our lives, most of us here in Middle Tennessee, living out our lives in what would seem to be utter obscurity in this vast universe. But, oh, dear friends, not so. The omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, sovereign God that created us is intimately aware of every single thing that's going on in your life right now and everything that will go on. There's no place that we can go, but what he is there. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 139, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down and art intimately acquainted with all my ways. And later on, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Well, I can understand that as well. Indeed, such love is inconceivable. That's why I love that great hymn. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches deep where sinners dwell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win his erring child. He reconciled and pardoned from his sin. One of the next verses says, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. And then you remember the refrain, it goes, oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels song. Dear friends, with all of this in mind, is it any wonder that the Lord would tell his disciples and therefore tell all of us, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. And that's where we're at today in Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 10. May I remind you once again of the context of this passage this is the fourth of five sermons that, that are recorded in Matthew's gospel. The theme of this particular discourse is the child likeness of the believer. That's why I've entitled this whole series, The Children of God. We have learned so far that we must enter the kingdom as a child, humble and dependent with nothing to offer. We've also learned that we must be protected as children and now today we see that we must be nurtured as children. So we learn much in this particular section of Scripture about how to get along with one another in the church, how to live out our lives in the context of the kingdom. Now, this was obviously a timely admonition because of what was going on with the disciples. You will recall that they were bickering amongst one another once again over their perceived status, over their rank in the kingdom. Who was the most spiritual and who deserves the greatest blessing when the kingdom is inaugurated here on earth? So Jesus rebukes them for their pride and their jealousy, their strife, their inflated egos. 
which was quite the opposite of the childlike humility necessary to enter the kingdom. That's why he had said in verse four, whoever then humbles himself is this child, probably the child that he had on his lap as an object lesson. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, today, we are going to see the importance of his children being nurtured and the sinfulness of despising one of his little ones. We're going to see, first of all, a rebuke for despising. And then secondly, reasons for nurturing. There will be three of those because of the ministry of the angels, because of the love of the shepherd and thirdly, the will of the father. So, first of all, let's look at what the Lord says as he rebukes anyone that would despise any of his little ones in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, certainly a reference to believers. Despise in the original language means to literally think down or to view someone as beneath you. You might say it is to look at someone with contempt. To be condescending towards another Christian, to even be rude or uncaring or hateful, to somehow think that you're better than they are, to see others as as worthless, as, as insignificant, as undeserving of your care and your nurturing and your respect. And it's interesting that the grammar of this text indicates that the Lord is saying this with the greatest of passion. There is great passion in this prohibition. He is literally saying, don't you dare mistreat one of my little ones. Don't you dare do that. This is not to ever happen in the church. Dear friends, we may be small, but we have a great champion in our God. I think of Cain that despised Abel. And God cursed him in Genesis 4. I think of Miriam and Aaron in Numbers 12 that despised their brother Moses. And you will recall that God struck Miriam with leprosy as white as snow. And I think of Diotrephes in 3 John, a little insignificant text, but a powerful text that talks about a man who loved to have the preeminence. Do you remember that? He loved to have the preeminence. He was a self-promoting demagogue within the church. He domineered the church, bossed everybody around, bullied people, slandered the Apostle John, and John publicly rebuked him. Dear friends, this idea of despising a little one is very, very serious business. Despising or looking down upon a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Now, remember, Jesus has just warned them not to be a stumbling block, which means to cause somebody to sin. Verse six, he said, better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. And certainly the disciples were guilty of this. They were taunting each other, exalting themselves, putting each other down so that they could look better, provoking people to 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 anger, to jealousy, to envy, to retaliation and so forth. And now he's warning them against despising, which is very similar, yet a bit different And friends, I fear that we all deserve the sting of this rebuke. Now, you might say, Pastor, quite honestly, I can't think of anybody that I really despise. Nobody in the church, nobody in the kingdom that I know of that I despise. Well, I hope that's the case. 
But let me give you some examples of despising. How about being insensitive to the needs of other Christians? Living your own life, living in your own little world, not caring about the needs of others, maybe even in your own church family. Oh, you'll write a check every now and then, but you won't write a card. If I were to give a list of all of the needs, even in this church, and say, I'm going to discuss them tonight, would you show up? Is that a priority for you? Even in this church, people need encouragement. They need discipleship. There are people right now that need friendship. People that need counseling, confronting. Some need to be taught. Some need to have prayer. We even have some elderly that are in nursing homes. Sometimes people need to have a meal. What about it? Are you insensitive to the needs of other Christians? If so, that's a form of despising. Think about your marriage. Men, do you realize that some, I'm sure, within the sound of my voice, have wives that are desperately longing to have their husbands help out around the house a little bit? Maybe help out with the kids some. Or to be a spiritual leader. I know women who have been married for years and their husbands have never initiated a time of devotion or a time of prayer with their wives. I know women that would love to have their husbands love Christ, love them as Christ loved the church. But instead, sometimes they have a demanding tyrant or the other extreme, a spineless wimp. That won't lead. Because after all, guys, we're too busy to fulfill our God-given role as leader in the home, right? As spiritual head. Men, if that's you, you're despising your wife. You're looking down upon her because you see yourself as more important than her. About you, wives, are you controlling, unsubmissive, contentious, maybe lazy, undisciplined? A constant source of irritation and disappointment to your husband. Well, there's many examples that we could talk about in the marriage. Let's go outside the marriage for a moment. What about those times when we harshly criticize another brother in Christ or sister in Christ? Are you a fault finder? A slanderer? A maligner? A gossiper? Do you find yourself ridiculing other people? Boy, it's easy to fall into that, isn't it? Are you a what I call speck detective? Where you're running around with beams coming out of both eyes, trying to find the speck in other people's eyes. I've seen that before where people are on preference patrol, kind of like Barney Fife with a bullet in the badge, running around trying to find out where somebody's breaking the rule. Folks, that's a form of despising your brothers in Christ, those that are the spiritual bullies, you know, the type, the my way or the highway. If I don't get my way, I'm going to be mad. I saw a sign the other day in some place where I was at and big sign up there. It said, uh, be reasonable, do it my way. Boy, when you have that in the church and people live that out, it's a form of despising, drives everybody crazy. We wouldn't allow that in our families. Likewise, God doesn't allow it in his. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 
Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important, important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who... Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. My dear friends, there's our example. How about despising another Christian by showing favoritism? Or partiality, being cliquish, you know what it means. Where you spend time with people who are attractive and winsome and influential and maybe wealthy, maybe famous, but you would never befriend somebody who is old and ugly and sickly and poor, perhaps unimportant. Or in some way socially unacceptable. Folks, that's the opposite of loving our neighbor as ourself. That's despising one of his little ones. How about failing to discipline your children? Oh, you didn't think of that, did you? You realize one of the greatest forms of child abuse today is, neg is the neglect that our children are getting because they're not being disciplined. They're not being instructed to understand who God is, even in Christian homes. I see so many homes that are what we call child-centered homes where there's a child in the middle of that home and mom and dad and everybody else orbits around the demands of that little child. The Bible says in Proverbs 29:15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. How about showing indifference to a sinning brother? You've got a friend or maybe a family member who is living in sin and you simply refuse to lovingly move into that person's life and gently confront them. Do you realize when that happens, you're despising them? The Word of God says in Proverbs 27, verse 5, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. It's sad when you see churches that refuse to discipline sin because that is a form of despising little ones. We'll talk about that more next week when we look at the issue of disciplining those within the body. Well, when we fail to confront other people, we do despise them. I've experienced this, by the way, when with folks when I have confronted them. And it's uh, it's sad. And certainly you have all, I'm sure, done this from time to time. But when you see a person that is caught in some web of sin that is clearly defined in Scripture and other people can see it, you are commanded to go to them and to confront them. In past years, I've had church members get upset with me when that has happened. And boy, when you start talking with pastors, and I'm so sure some of you, maybe in families, you've had the same thing. 
You hear all kinds of stories of people's responses. And many times we determine the rightness of what we do by the quality of response it may elicit. And we think, oh, my, I don't want to get into that. I don't want to meddle. After all, judge not lest you be judged. Right. And we misquote and misinterpret that whole text in order to bail ourselves out. But occasionally you'll confront somebody and rather than them becoming angry with you, they will respond with joy and they will repent. What a great thing that has been, even in this church. We've seen that. I've seen that in in the lives of family members. You've seen that as well. Well, there are many ways when we that, that we can despise our siblings in Christ. And friends, the point is God hates every one of those ways. He hates it when we show contempt for brothers and sisters in Christ. Our role as children of the kingdom is to nurture one another, to show care and to show concern. And he goes on to tell us why. Three reasons. First of all, because of the ministry of the angels. Verse 10, he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my father who is in heaven. Now, this is an amazing statement. Literally, as we study scripture, we see that there are a host of angels that continually gaze upon the face of God, waiting to do his bidding on our behalf. His care for us is so important and also important to his angelic servants that they constantly behold his face, waiting to be dispatched to do his bidding on behalf of a, on behalf of us at an instant notice. Now, you want to remember, we have two enemies that we are constantly battling. One is outside, one is inside. One is Satan and his minions in the kingdom of darkness that is constantly trying to attack us with subtle schemes, typically with false doctrine and all kinds of temptations. And then, of course, the other enemy, which is far greater, is our own flesh. On the inside, we remember that the Bible says in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. But also we know that constantly we have our flesh trying to lead us in the wrong directions. And so we are like foolish sheep that's, that constantly stray from the pastures of spiritual safety. And, and we are constantly rebelling against, against the wishes of our good shepherd. Yet think of this. God uses his angels to accomplish his purposes in our lives. So that's why the Lord is saying, don't you dare despise one of my little ones. My angels take care of them. There are relentless battles being waged on our behalf in the unseen world as we think of the two kingdoms, the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. I think of of Gabriel, you will recall, when he was sent to uh, comfort Daniel in Daniel 9, about verse 21. Daniel was extremely weary. You may recall that incident where an angel had been dispatched to strengthen Daniel but and, and to give him divine revelation concerning prophecy. It's a wonderful um, Prophetic truths that are there in that text. But that particular angel that was dispatched was was held up by a demon who was the called the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And then Michael, who was always associated with war in the Bible, was was dispatched to help out. 
And you know, friends, there continues to be a never-ending battle for the control of nations and religious systems and anything that Satan can use to somehow thwart the purposes of God. But God is caring for us constantly in ways that we could never even imagine. Indeed, we are God's children, and therefore we are prime targets of the world's evil, evil system. And sadly, we are even the targets sometimes of brothers and sisters in Christ that would treat their siblings in Christ in despicable ways, despising one another. So God uses angels to accomplish his purposes. So he talks about our angels here in this text who continually behold his face. By the way, there's no such thing as a guardian angel. That's a myth. You hear that from time to time. You don't find that any place in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14 says that these holy angels are all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Beloved, think of this. I, I really want you to grasp this because this is such an incredible truth. These are the angels, the holy angels who attended God in the giving forth of the law. These are the glorious creatures with inconceivable power that are perfectly submissive to the will of the father to care for his own children. These are the angels that are constantly averting evil and procuring good. These are the angels, the word of God tells us that rejoice when even one sinner comes to repentance. Great celebration in heaven when that occurs. Now, I ask you, with such supernatural care for our well-being, seeing the passion of our Father for the welfare of His children, beholding the inconceivable links He administers for our safety and our joy and our sanctification and our blessing, what fool would dare despise one of His little ones? That's the point of this passage. Those of us whose companions are angels and whose champion is the Lord of hosts. Beloved, remember that the next time you think down upon another brother in Christ. The next time you try to put somebody down. The next time you try to bully them or control them or treat them rudely or to treat them with indifference, or to see them walking in sin and just say, well, you know, I'm not going to get involved in that. Perhaps now you better understand his great passion and this prohibition. Don't you dare mistreat one of my little ones. This is never to happen. But there is a second reason, not only because of the angelic care but secondly, because of the love of Christ, the shepherd's love in verse 12. Now, you might notice I skipped verse 11. The reason I've done that is because that verse is not found in the best early manuscripts. It is found in Luke's gospel, and we believe that it was probably inserted here in Matthew's gospel by a well-meaning copyist. And he took it from Luke's gospel and, and inserted it in Matthew's gospel. But because of its doubtful authenticity, since it's not a part of Matthew's original gospel, I'll not expound upon it. But we see another reason why we should not despise other Christians found in verses 12 and 13. Let me remind you of that. He says, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety nine on the mountain and go and search 
for the one that is straying. And if it turns out that he finds it, truly, I say to you that he rejoices over it more than over the ninety nine which have not gone astray. Friends, here again, we see the love of the shepherd for his sheep. Because we are united to him in a mystical, spiritual bond. We are his cherished possession. The parable is rather obvious. It was one that the people would have understood, and we understand it even in our day. It was very common in that day, as today, for sheep to wander away from the rest of the sheep, from the fold, from the shepherd. And to get lost, especially in the steep canyons there in Palestine. If you've ever been there, you would see that very quickly. But we also know that shepherds know their flock intimately. They can kind of instinctively know when one of them are missing. And typically know which ones are going to be prone to wander. Are you beginning to get the parallel already? And the shepherd is very, very concerned when the sheep wander from his care and wander from the fold because they become easy prey for predators, for thieves, for injury. And so what we know is that a shepherd would instinctively know when one of his sheep would be missing and he would immediately commence a search for that sheep. And by the way, he searches without partiality. Because he loves all of his sheep equally. And shepherds are great trackers. They know well those temptations that appeal to certain sheep. And know pretty much if one of them's gone, which direction or for what purpose that sheep might have taken off. And it was common for the shepherd then to go after the sheep and sometimes to risk his life fighting off wolves and other animals. To rescue them off of some cliff that they fell off upon. And then to find them and to, and to dress their wounds and, and bind their broken limbs. And then they would place them on their shoulder and carry them back to the fold. Well, the imagery is obvious, is it not? This is speaking of Jesus as our shepherd. Don't you find great comfort in this? Knowing that at those times in our stupidity, when we walk off and we wander away, he is going to go after us. And he is going to protect us. In Hebrews 13, verse 20, we read, Our Lord Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. So the good shepherd loves us so much that he goes after us even when we're stubbornly rebellious, seeking our spiritual well-being. And you know, as you think about it, just like sheep, we we are defenseless on our own. We need the constant care and supervision of an almighty shepherd. You know, all through the Old Testament and the New Testament, we read of the extended allegories of God as our shepherd. I think of Ezekiel 34, where God severely rebukes the irresponsible shepherds for fleecing and and scattering and failing to feed the sheep and caring for them. In verse 11 of that text, he says, For thus says the Lord God, indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep. So I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they are scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I think of the passage in Mark's gospel in Mark 6, 34, 
There we read that Jesus saw a great throng and he had compassion on them. Remember, it, it just ripped his guts out is the concept there. He had great compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so what did he do? He shepherded them. And the text says that he began to teach them many things. And of course, that great section of Scripture in John 10 And there Jesus describes himself in verse 11, saying, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So Jesus point here in Matthew 18 is simply this. Don't you dare despise one of my little ones, for not only do I attend to their needs with my heavenly host, but I am their shepherd. Don't mess with them. When even one of them is in peril, I'm going to go after them. I'm going to seek them. I'm going to teach them. I am going to bind up their wounds. Think of Peter's words in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is, and the text says, goes on to say, patient toward us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So, friends, given the magnitude of this love, This love the shepherd has for his sheep. What makes any of us think that we have the right to show contempt for one of his little ones? Let me digress for a moment with something very practical. The next section of scripture that we will look at in next week, we'll get more into this idea of disciplining those who wander. But I want to address this idea of what our responsibility is when somebody wanders away from the flock. Now, certainly we must never despise a brother or sister in Christ by ignoring their sin. We are to go after them. We are to seek them, to restore them to fellowship. And by the way, that's not just my job. That's your job. But I would draw your attention to a passage of Scripture in Galatians 6. If you want to turn there just for a moment. In Galatians chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1. It says, brethren. Notice it doesn't say pastor. It says, brethren. That's you all and me all. (laughs) Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. By the way, the word restore, catartizo in the original language, it was a a medical surgical term used to to describe the setting of a bone when it is broken. So the, the point is, when you see someone in sin, you're to love them enough to go and help set the bone. It's broken. And certainly that can be painful if you've ever had a bone that needs to be set. I've never had that, but I've helped do it with some animals before. And I've seen it done with a human being once. And it's not a pretty sight, but it has to be done. It's painful. But, oh, the outcome is so much better than if you leave it alone. So he says, I want you to go and I want you to tenderly, as if you're setting a bone, but yet appropriately, aggressively, I want you to restore a person. Do it in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too, you too be tempted. And then he says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. By the way, the term bear there 
is a term that, that, that was used in Matthew 8, 17 for our Lord uh, bearing our sins upon the cross. It's the idea of getting under something that is heavy and trying to help someone carry it. And in this case, it's someone's burdens, which is literally a heavy load, a heavy load of habitual sin. So the idea here is if you see somebody in sin, you go to them in the spirit of gentleness. You try to set the bone, so to speak, and then you get underneath their habitual load of life dominating sin and you try to help them see it and deal with it. So often we think of bearing one another's burdens as kind of commiserating with one another when we have some difficulty in our in our life. And certainly there, there's a place for that form of one anothering. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about discipling someone who is in need of help because of their sin. Now, the point with this is we need to be grieved when we see someone in egregious and, and persistent sin in our families, in, in, in our church, and do all together all that we can to, to go after them and to help them. But many times the question comes up, how long do you pursue them if they refuse to repent and be reconciled? And we'll talk more about this next week, but obviously there are limits depending upon the situation. I'm going to give you a practical illustration that's a common problem in all churches. It goes kind of like this. Someone gets offended by somebody in the church. Or maybe they're offended because their particular preferences about whatever it is are not being met and they get upset. Or maybe they've even been confronted by some person in the church. Many times it's the pastor because that's usually left up to me. And I will confront people. Maybe I've confronted some of you. I would only do that if it's some persistent sin that is obvious and clearly defined in Scripture that's bringing dishonor upon the, the, the church, upon Christ, and ultimately being divisive in the body. But then what happens is you confront that person or the person gets upset for whatever reason and they, they, they get mad and they leave the church. All right, now what do you do? How long do you pursue, pursue them? How long do you leave the 99 to go after the one? And I have certainly been criticized sharply, as other pastors that I know have, by well-meaning, but I believe ignorant people who do not know the facts about certain situations or they do not understand Scripture. I've been criticized for not chasing after people and begging them to come back to the church. Well, is that what you're supposed to do? And on several occasions, people have used this particular text. Well, sadly, what typically happens is when people get mad, they expect, well, first of all, they leave. And then what happens? They wait until the pastor comes, you know, to hear their beef and hopefully get it straightened out. Well, and then, by the way, hopefully do things their way. Rather than what we should do is go to whoever it is in the church, maybe it's me, maybe it's you, and try to work things out in private. And to deal with these things or meet with the leadership or whatever. 
And by the way, certainly not everybody that has left this church over the years. And, and there's there's people that leave the church all the time. I mean, that's every church. You're going to have that. But not everybody would fit into this category. So I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush. But the point is, what should we do? Well, the point is, is really this. Here's what we should do. You lovingly confront them, according to Galatians six, according to Matthew 18, that we'll study more next week. But folks, if they remain hostile, if they remain divisive, if they remain unrepentant, you let them go. You avoid contact with them, except the contact to to bring them back to repentance. You break fellowship with them. Paul addressed this, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 and 19. He said, I hear that factions exist among you there in the church in Corinth. And in part, I believe it, he said, for there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may become may have become evident among you. So literally what he's saying is. Is simply this, as difficult and as heart-wrenching as dissension is in the body of Christ, it is God's method of exposing hypocrisy as well as validating genuine spirituality and purity. The New Testament gives many examples of this very issue. Paul talked uh, to Titus in Titus chapter 3. He was at the church on the island of Crete, you will recall. And in Titus 3, beginning in verse 9, he was saying, shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. In other words, they were having people that were nitpicking about this, that and other thing and causing fights in the church. And then he says, reject a factious man. It could be a heretic, somebody that is divisive, whatever. Reject that person. After a first and second warning. Knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. In other words, anyone who is self-willed, antagonistic, um, uh, divisive, somebody that is a stumbling block within the church, somebody that's despising other people within the church, they're to be warned two times, which is always the basic pattern of, of church discipline. And then they're to be expelled from the church. You don't go running after them constantly to bring them back unless they're repentant and you pray for that. And you do all you can to facilitate that. By the way, usually they leave on their own will and they vow never to return. I was talking with a pastor friend just a couple of weeks ago who was lamenting over that very thing in his church. And, and according to Matthew 18, those who persist in impenitence, you, you treat them literally as an unbeliever. Even though they might be saved, you treat them as an unbeliever. As an unrepentant outsider. And they are usually... Then uh, gone from the church for uh, forever. Many times they go to another church, but that's sad. But you you hope that they will somehow be reconciled, but they are literally to be totally ostracized from church fellowship. They're no longer recipients of of the blessings of the church and the fellowship of the church and, and the encouragement of the church, because we are to have a living object lesson of what has happened in the wounded relationship that has gone on between them and the Lord. And to do otherwise is to despise them. The only contact we're to have is to lovingly confront them. And this is always for the purpose of of restoration, not retaliation. Paul said the same thing to Timothy at the church of Ephesus in 1 Timothy 1.20. There were a couple of characters there in that church, Hamanius and Alexander. And he says, um, as they confronted them, he said, Whom I have delivered over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. 
Same thing to the church at Thessalonica. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. And then in verses 14 and 15, he went on to say, and if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him. So that he may be put to shame. And yet, now folks, catch this, because this has to be our heart. And yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Same thing at the church at Rome. In Romans 16, verse 17, Paul said to those dear people, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. You find no consensus with them. You have no fellowship with them. So certainly, folks, we lovingly bear with one another's imperfections. We do all we can to reconcile. We do all we can to emulate the love of our Lord, pursuing wandering sheep. But there are limits that are clearly defined in Scripture for extreme situations. But again, may I remind you, you never stop loving these people. You never stop praying for them. And when you have an opportunity to be around them, you admonish them in love. But folks, you don't make it your crusade. You don't spend all of your time on a few rebellious saints, because if you do, you will forfeit ministry to other people who are teachable. I'm reminded of Paul's words in Ephesians 5:17. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. You know, if I went running after everybody that I have somehow offended, that's all I would do. And you too. Well, the point is, we can despise people by not going after them, but there are limits. So Jesus has warned us now against despising any of his little ones on the basis of the intimate care provided by the ministry of his angels and the love of the shepherd. And finally, because of the will of the father. Notice verse 14, he says, thus, in other words, in light of the ministry of the angels and the intimate love and care of Christ, our shepherd, thus, it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Folks, here again, we see his great love. Perish, by the way, many times means death or devastation, but also it can mean, as in this case, Something that is a, a temporary, non-permanent loss or non-permanent defeat. When, when, when there, there's something that, that causes ruin or, or destruction or, or the suffering of injury, pain or grief or whatever. See, keep this in mind. To cause one of his children to stumble, as we've learned, is to despise one of his little ones. And when that happens... We cause them to forfeit blessing and maybe even because of now we've, we've led them into sin and, and, and God begins to chasten them. But when we despise one of his little ones, we're causing them to perish, shall we say, or in other words, to experience defeat or pain or, or grief or injury. You don't want that. If you've ever been despised yourself, you know exactly what that pain feels like. It can be absolutely devastating. I think of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2. He was despised by people in the church that was supposed to love him in Corinth. And certainly by some of the 
false teachers that had invaded that church. And his heart was so filled with anguish, the text says. He, was, he, he had many tears. He was filled with overwhelming sorrow. He was so depressed that he tells us that he had no rest for his spirit. Beloved, being despised, being the recipient of being despised is a grievous and devastating thing. But may God have mercy upon the despiser. For he, is, he or she is assaulting the children of the kingdom of the Most High God and therefore attacking God himself. So this morning, I would humbly ask you to examine your ways, to take inventory of those who perhaps you look down upon. Maybe those that you are treating with indifference that you view with contempt. The subtle ways maybe you are condescending to someone. You view them with scorn or worthless or as insignificant. You're indifferent to their needs, to their plight. You won't take time to go visit them or speak with them or have them over for a cup of coffee and pray with them or whatever it is. Because after all, they're undeserving of your care. You've got more important things to do. Dear friends, don't despise any of his little ones. God, give me eyes that I might see every saint superior to me. Guard my heart from foolish pride and fill me with humility. I'm going to close this morning with something different. There is a reading on page 570 of your hymn book, if you want to turn there. I'm going to read this to you because I think it is such a wonderful summary of the heart that we need to have. And I would like to read it so that we could have these as words of aspiration as well as words of consecration. Because, again, folks, it's so easy for all of us, myself included, to cause other believers to stumble and to even despise them. What a sad and wicked thing that is. This particular reading is taken from Colossians 3. Let me just read it as you follow along. And again, this will be just some words of consecration on our part. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, not on earthly things. For your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of his creator. Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be careful 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's bow our heads together. Father, again, we thank you for the clarity of your word, but we must confess that we all struggle with these issues. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace in our lives and for your patience with us. And we just pray that you will continue to bear with us, helping us to become more like Christ, even as we view those around us, because, Lord, sometimes it is difficult to live with our brothers and sisters in Christ and sometimes it's hard to know where, where to draw the line on various things. But Lord, I pray that you will help us to always err on the side of being gracious and forgiving and humble and kind and merciful. Lord, thank you for these words. And finally, Spirit of God, I pray that you will bring enormous and overwhelming conviction to any soul that was that is within the sound of my voice that knows nothing of the great shepherd that knows nothing of your love that has never entered into the kingdom with childlike humility crying out for the mercy and grace that can only come from the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving work Lord I pray that today will be the day that they humble themselves at the foot of the cross and experience the miracle of the new birth. Lord, we commit them to you. Thank you for meeting with us this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.